0: Jeremiah 24 is where we're going to be today. Jeremiah 24. It was Noble's first birthday, and it seemed like a celebration was in order. A celebration that Lindsay and I had survived this whole year. We had this, well, I say we. Lindsay had this vision of the perfect birthday party. The theme, any, any guesses on the theme out there? Weenie dogs. Weenie weenie dogs was the theme. Dachshunds. Uh, I don't know that you're surprised about that. So she stays up well into the night, the night before, and she's making things like chili dogs. Get it? She makes puppy chow. She makes bow wownies, which brownies, I thought that one was kind of a stretch. And she puts them all in these giant dog bowls to serve them out of that she's made. She's making, she does something like 40 different Pinterest projects for this one birthday, I think. Like, If you don't know what Pinterest is, just be grateful. All it does is make birthdays a lot harder for the rest of us. (laughs) So, the morning of the party, she's been up all night working on this stuff. The morning of the party, our reach group's on their way over, because that's all we can afford to fit into our little house. Our reach group's on their way over. They're going to be there in about an hour and a half. She looks at me and she says, Eric, I just need you to do one thing. I say, anything, babe. She says, give Noble a bath. I say, oh, I can do that. I I give her a salute, and I go, and I get Noble, and I take him back to the bath, and I turn on the water, I put in some bubble bath, I drop in a ducky or two. Things are going swimmingly. Lindsay's going to be so in love with me. She's going to be so thankful. I'm an awesome husband. I'm basically dominating this whole dad thing. And then in a flash, before I could even register what was happening, Noble tries to stand in the soapy tub, slips and his mouth hits the edge of the tub time stood still noble's eyes widened sucked in a deep breath and then he just let the floodgates loose you know screams tears blood everywhere So Lindsay comes running, and she finds both Noble and me on the floor, covered in soap and blood, both of us just sobbing. I can't even talk. I feel like I'm the worst dad ever in history. And sure enough, in all of his birthday pictures, he's got this swollen lip, his first birthday, (laughs) and his groggy eyes look like he's drunk on children's Tylenol. Because he was. I mean, he was. It was my fault. It was my fault. And it hurt it still hurts me i mean noble's gotten over it but i still haven't i'm sick over what i did or i failed to do either way you cut it it's my fault and it stinks so it's like what god says in jeremiah 42 i am grieved over the disaster i've inflicted on you okay now Now, I've never sent a whole nation into Babylonian exile or allowed Babylon to take a whole nation into exile. Either way, you cut it. I've not done exactly that. But I appreciate how human God sounds here, how much like a mom or dad God sounds. Hey, I'm really sorry about all this. But sorry, when it comes from God, leaves us wanting something more, doesn't it? You see, we're finishing up this series, Flux, about a nation and their prophet that God sends or allows to be sent into exile. And the question that we've been asking pretty much the whole series is, what do you do in those times in exile? What do you do when life gets really hard? What did faithful people like Jeremiah do when life got hard? But today we ask this different question, not what do you do when life gets hard, but when life gets hard what's God doing? How does God feel about this? And when God looks down and says, I'm grieved over the disaster I've inflicted on you, when we think that regret is all that we get from God, well, we take issue with that, don't we? Well, God, you did this. This is your fault. Let's return to the bathtub scene that we started with and treat it as a metaphor. Okay. So like any metaphor, it only works to an extent. You can't push it too far, so let's kind of rein it in, but we'll, we'll go with it. So imagine for a second that God is me, the Father, in this scene. The, the Heavenly Father, if you will. Okay, a little cheesy, not, not my best work there, but you get what I'm saying. He's, he's the dad looking over the bathtub in this scene. And now you and me, okay, we are noble in the scene except that we're potty trained, which makes us infinitely more sophisticated, in my estimation. Okay, our mouth has just hit the edge of the tub. We've got blood, we've got tears streaming down our face, and in that moment, we look up at God, our Father, with this questioning gaze. Why'd you do that, God? Were you distracted? Were your hands covered in soap, and so you, you couldn't stop our fall? Or or were you trying to teach us a lesson because we've been standing in the tub a lot lately and even though you've spanked us a time or two, we still think that we're in charge? Well, was this an accident, God, or was it was it on purpose? Well, because either way, it's not cool. You're supposed to be God. Where's mom? Do you hear what I'm saying? Let's lay our cards on the table. Let's be really honest right here at the start of this sermon. Let's be honest, let's be honest about how we feel about God and what God should be doing. Okay. We place our lives in God's hands when we're baptized. Okay. In that moment, it's like saying, I turn it all over to you, God. And here's the really honest part we expect a return on that investment. I'm not saying that we expect to get rich or anything like that, I'm saying something very simple. We expect God to look out for us now that he has our life in his hands. God should protect our investment in his big global project, and that investment is ourselves. It's us. God should protect us and prevent crisis in our life. And so when life is going really good, which it has for all of us at times, we say, God, you're doing Great. Job well done. Keep it up. You obviously love me. You're obviously a good God. Okay. But when life goes bad, when our mouth hits the edge of the tub, we look up at God, and despite what the best preachers have told us, despite our hours in Bible study, despite our prayers every morning and night, even the best of us in that moment want to look up at God and say, God, you are not doing your job. And the proof is in the pudding or in the tub. In this case, you are not doing your job. You're supposed to protect me. That's how we feel. Let me tell you about Norma. Norma is both sweeter and tougher than me, more tough. Norma built her own house by herself in West Texas. She welds, she raises cattle, she works on cars. She's tough, okay? She's also sweet. She will cook you a meal when you're sick. She'll listen to you when you're crying. She'll give you anything you need. She will tow your car from Cottonwood to Abilene, which is about 45 minutes, which she did for me about six times. Okay? That car was not the most reliable, but Norma was. So Norma was married as a young woman. She had two kids, and she was married to this bad man who left her with the two kids, left her to raise the kids on her own, just, I mean, just up and left her. So Norma makes this covenant with herself. She's not going to allow herself to love anybody else until these kids are grown. But when they're grown, she meets a man. They fall in love. She's in her 50s, and they decide to move across the country after getting married to West Texas, to Cottonwood, Texas, where they buy this little ranch, and they're going to raise cattle and farm and just live their dream in retirement. And life is so good. In fact, Norma feels so blessed. She's, so, she's, she's like just newly falling in love with God, right? And she feels so blessed that she returns to church for the first time since her heartache, like 30 years before. So she comes back to this little church in Cottonwood, and she and her husband are serving our little church. And they start a volunteer fire department in Cottonwood. God is faithful, and they are grateful. And then one morning, her husband doesn't wake up. Heart attack. Total surprise. To say it grieved Norma, to use the language of God, of Jeremiah, would be an understatement. It gutted Norma. I started preaching in there two months after this had happened, and when I arrived, the sorrow on Norma, on that town, on our church, was palpable. It was like a cloud that hung over everybody, especially Norma. So here she was, she was far away from her home. She was in a new land with God's seeming blessing just ripped away from her. She was like Ruth, a modern-day Ruth. And she was in exile. Exile was the word for it. And as this little community of Cottonwood looked on to our sister in her exile, the collective feeling was, God, you missed it. You are not doing your job. That's how we felt. So we weren't the first to feel that way. My guess is that you have felt that way. I felt that way. And so we come at this text in Jeremiah 24 where we're going to be today, and that is exactly how Israel feels right now. Okay, let me, let me set up the scene in Jeremiah 24, because what Israel feels in Jeremiah 24 is that God's playing favorites. He's working for some and not working for others. Well, let me explain so right before this scene, Babylon has swooped into Jerusalem, okay? Jeremiah's beloved city. And he's, Je- Babylon has sacked that city. But here's what they do. They send some of the Israelites into exile. They send them away from their homes, off into the desert, into this harsh place. Okay? Children, grown-ups, older folks, I mean, all these people shipped off out of town. But he leaves, Babylon leaves some of the Israelites back home in Jerusalem. There's this group that gets to stay. They get to stay in their same homes. They get to eat at their same tables. They get to go to the same markets. Life is good for them. And meanwhile, many of their old friends are off in the desert, and they're struggling. So put faces on these two groups, if you will. Imagine, if you will, two little boys. Let's say they're about 12 years old. All right? And one of those boys with his family is shipped off into the desert. And you can imagine something like the Trail of Tears. They're on this dusty journey, off in exile. They're carrying only what they can on their backs. Some people are not making it on the journey. They're, they're dying on the journey. And this little boy, 12 years old, sees all of it. So one night at dinner. They're sitting around the campfire. And his dad looks at him and he says, son, look around. It is obvious God's abandoned us. Look around. All right, so meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, there's another boy, let's say he's 12 years old, same age, and he's sitting in his home, in the home that he grew up in, the home that he was born in, eating at the table he's eating at every night of his whole life. And his dad's there, and his mom's there, and they're passing lamb and soup and wine, and it's fun, and there's laughter, and the dad looks at his son, and thinking about all those out there in exile, and he says, Son, it's obvious that God loves us and is watching over us for our good. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? That's how we calculate God's affection and favor. Despite everything we've been taught, that's how we calculate it. That's logical. For those that's going bad, God's abandoned them. And for those that's going good, God loves them and he's blessing them. That's what we do. And I think that's what Israel thinks leading up to Jeremiah 24 when God shows Jeremiah a vision. So look at the vision. The Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. Jump ahead to verse 2 here. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad they couldn't be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs. The good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so bad they can't be eaten. And the word of the Lord came to me. Pay attention here. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I've sent away from this place into the land of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. I'll set my eyes upon them for good, and I'll bring them back to this land. I'll build them up. I won't tear them down. I'll plant them. I won't pluck them up. I'll give them a new heart to know that I am the Lord. They shall be my people, and I'll be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Okay, But, thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they can't be eaten, so I will treat King Zedekiah of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in the land, those who got to stay in their home in Jerusalem, and those who live in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror. An evil thing to all the kings and kingdoms of the earth, a disgrace, a byword, a taunt, and a curse, in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword and famine and pestilence upon them until they are utterly destroyed from that land that I gave to their ancestors. Okay, God says in this vision that things are not as simple as they seem, Jeremiah. It's not one group in exile that I've obviously abandoned and one group back home that I obviously love more. No, things are not that simple. In fact, right now, I'm doing something special with the exiles. Right now, those people in crisis are my chosen people. I'm giving them a new heart, and I'm giving them the chance to know me in a way that's special. And here's how. I promise they'll be my people And I'll be their God. Or in other words, I promise to be present with them in exile. In a way that not everyone, especially those back in Israel, are going to get to experience. I'm not going to end the exile right now. In fact, it's going to last for a few more years. Some people will die here in exile. But here's the promise. I'll be present with them in a way I won't be present with everyone else and that's a promise. So when I saw that promise in this text, it was like, you know, a red alert. Okay, it jumped out to me. This is what you need to preach about, Eric, this promise. Because that promise of presence from God in Jeremiah 24, that he will be their people, or that he will be their God, and they will be his people, shows up throughout the Bible. It starts back in Exodus when God is explaining the tabernacle or his dwelling so that he can come and be present, dwell with his people in where? Exile, right? They're in the desert. They're in crisis. That's when it starts. And then it also shows up at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 when God describes the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. So God is coming to dwell with his people, and this is what he says. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be one with them. So it's like all of scripture from Exodus to Revelation is moving towards this moment when one day in the future we'll get to experience what it means to be present really with God. To be his people and for him to be our God. Everything is moving towards that moment. But that same promise is scattered throughout the Old Testament. All over the Old Testament. And here's the kicker. The majority of times that promise is used, it's used to Israel when they're in exile, when they're in crisis, not when things are going well. In fact, when things are going well, it would be unusual to get that promise from God. So it's like God is sending this message through all of his prophets, through all these writers of the Old Testament, that when life is hard, I'll give you this unique opportunity to know me, to be present with me in a way that I won't give to everyone else until the end of time. In crisis, you can get a taste of what eternity feels like. So God's not just sorry when life is hard, but he's making himself present with you in a way he doesn't always do for everyone else. We want more than sorry from God, and we get it. So this is why when Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, and he says things that I think based on our human calculus, you know, things are going good for somebody, God loves them, things are going bad for somebody, God has obviously abandoned them. When Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, that is the first thing that he tackles. Because he knows that's how all humans feel. And what he says, based on our human calculations, seems like a lie. But if we believe what God is saying in Jeremiah 24, then it's possible that what Jesus is saying is the truth. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. God declares people blessed in their hardest moments. In their hardest moments is when they're blessed. Not in the future, right then. So, so God sees our pain, and because He's present there, it grieves Him. Because He's suffering along with us, the pain is grievous to Him. And yet, And yet, it's God's presence in our pain that makes a future there possible at all. It's because God's present that He can declare us blessed in those moments when the world thinks we are anything but blessed. Then, right then, not in the future, but right when we are persecuted, right when we hunger and thirst, right when we mourn, it's right then, in our pain, that God makes new promises. Promises to build us up and not to pluck us up, or to plan us and not to tear us down. Right then, in our pain, He promises that He will be present with us, that He will be our God, and that we will get to be His people. Right there, in our pain, He gives us this taste of what the presence of God in eternity feels like right then. So I got to watch as Norma was rebuilt and replanted. Um, I watched as God's presence and new promises brought her back to life. In desperate moments when the loss was grievous to her, was still very real to her, she was drawn deeper and deeper into this relationship with God. We all got to see it happening. Her fears of loneliness, of abandonment, her heartache, all those things began to dissolve away. And she began to be filled with what she would describe as the presence of God, as she often did. I don't know, Eric, but I just feel like God's been present this week. She didn't have to explain it. We knew that in her exile, God was doing something, not just feeling something, doing something. I believe God was grieved along with her because he suffered with her, just as he suffered years before that on the cross, the great indicator that God is not averse to suffering, that he knows it, has experienced it, and experienced it again with Norma. But she was born through that suffering. God didn't erase the suffering from her life, but she was carried through it by a presence. And she was eventually planted back in the land, we might say, planted back in Jerusalem. In her hopelessness, God planted the seed of hope. And the great irony is that she went and became an EMT. Now she's the first and only EMT in Cottonwood, so that if someone else has a heart attack, Norma will respond. How ironic that out of this hopelessness, God now provides hope to others in crisis. I can't say it's the way that I would have done it, but God saw Norma as this ripe fig when the rest of us thought her life had soured. And my prayer is that if your life is going sour, that you will know God's promise-making presence, that that presence will ripen in your life, that you'll stop for just a second with all the math and all the human calculus about who God loves and who God doesn't love, and that you will realize that God's presence is more powerful than numbers can attest to, that God is grieved as you are grieved because God suffers suffered before and suffers now with you, only because God is present with you. I want to end in a time of prayer. This this will be a little bit more extended time than we usually do, but it's it's the best I have to offer today. Will you pray with me? God, often when life is hard, we don't know what to say. I think about when life is hard for folks that we love and we, we stumble through the prayer and we say, um, God, will, uh, um, uh, will, you just, will you be present with this person? And it feels, it feels like it's just uh, something trifle, something we throw out there, and we don't know that it's really going to change anything, but we offer it. But God, I am more convinced than ever after experiencing Jeremiah 24 that your presence is the most powerful thing that I have to offer someone in suffering. That what we what we often hope for is that you will protect us from crisis that you'll prevent crisis in our life that you'll eliminate crisis when we step into it but it may be that the greater blessing would be that you be present in crisis and i pray that we have the faith to ask for that and that we ask for it in boldness and confidence that we beg for it and that you remember your promise to be our god and to make us your people and that you be present and god i can't i can't pray that prayer without thinking about those in our body who are suffering right now be it from illness or job loss or marriages that are falling apart. And God, my deep, sincere prayer is that you protect those people, that you eliminate that pain. But God, I guess my greater confidence is that you'll be present with them in their pain and that it's that presence that might make a future there in their pain possible, that that pain might not be the end of them, but be the beginning of a new thing. And only that's only possible, God, because you're present. And God, I can't I can't preach today and not think about the twenty-one men who lost their lives in the Middle East this week, who lost their lives in the name of the cross, their captors said. My heart breaks for their families, my heart breaks for their churches, for your church that is all over the world. I think about the pain that they must have endured and it wrenches my soul. But God, my great prayer is that <clears throat> comes comes from, from knowing that they suffered in the name of the cross, the great example that we have of your willingness to suffer. And it's because I think they suffered in solidarity with your crucified son that your crucified son suffers in solidarity with them and their families now. And I can't ask for anything more. God, I pray that you protect your people. You protect your people here, that you protect your people in the Middle East, that you not tear them down or pluck them up, but that you build them up and plant them. But until that project is complete, God, I pray that these brothers and sisters of ours will know in the most intimate way your presence. And I pray that you will remember your promise to be their God and to be our God, and that you will give us all new hearts to mend the ones that are broken. God, I beg for your protection for them and for myself, but more so I beg you for your presence, without which your people have no hope. May your presence be enough. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand and worship with us? If you have not given your life to Jesus in baptism and want to do that today and experience God's presence, I'd love to talk with you. If you need prayers, I'd love to receive you in those. Let's stand and sing together. When peace like a river attends...